0: Last week we began our study looking at the first 5 verses of Job 1 and today we're going on with the rest of Job chapter 1. Last week we saw this glimpse, this picture as it were of Job's life, a very blessed man, the gr- greatest of the men of the east, very rich and a godly man who prayed for his children and his fa- family and We see this key element in verse 1, that he was blameless and upright, and he feared God and shunned evil, which is an important theme throughout the book of Job in terms of why Job's sufferings befell him. This evening we're looking, beginning at verse 6. Let us give heed to God's Word as we hear it. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, "'Where have you come from?' Satan answered the Lord, "'From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it.' Then the Lord said to Satan, "'Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns e- evil.' Does, God, does, "'Does Job fear God for nothing?' Satan replied." Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land? But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest br- brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking in an Another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Let us pray. Father, we do ask for Your help as we seek to grasp the teaching of Your Word. Help us to apply it to our own lives, where we are, and in our walk with You, Help us to understand more of who You are and how to live in faith in You. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the movies that I enjoyed as a boy was The Wizard of Oz. And there's this scene where near the end of the movie, Dorothy, the girl who's the star, and her companions are standing before the great and terrible Oz. They've done their task that he had sent them out to do, and they've destroyed the Wicked Witch of the West, and they have her broomstick to prove this. And they're coming back to the great and terrible Oz so that he gives them now what they want, to, what they want in fulfillment of their quest. And as you probably know the story well, Toto's dog goes over in the side and pulls back the curtain where a mere human being is engineering all these controls to the great and terrible Oz. And you know that there is no great and terrible Oz. The man, the Oz, and the man were a great fake. I was always really disappointed at that part because I wanted the Wizard of Oz to be real and wanted him to do something great. But we all know how the story ends. Dorothy manages to get home another way. Well, here in Job chapter 1, Job's life falls apart he experiences the overwhelming loss of all his possessions and all of his ten children. And next chapter, it will get even worse, and it will be downhill throughout the book of Job until the end. But we see something here in these first two chapters. It's as if we are ushered behind the curtain and given a glimpse of why things are happening to Job as they are. And what we find behind the curtain in the book of Job is far from a disappointment. Actually, what is revealed is a brief sketch, a brief glimpse about the absolute sovereignty of God and the goodness of God as He fulfills His plan and His purpose for Job's life. What do we find in this glimpse behind the curtain in Job chapter 1? I'd like just to highlight some of the The main characters here and what we see, we find the description of Satan. Actually, it's a title or office more than anything else that's assigned to literally the Satan or the accuser or the prosecutor, as it might actually have meant. This evil, fallen, angelic being, as we know him to be from further scriptural descriptions of him, but certainly one of the deepest enigmas in the story of the book of Job. And as you read through the book, you understand that Job, living when he did and in his time, and apparently, uh, as far as he knew, he was kept entirely in the dark about what happened behind the scenes and possibly even about the existence of his great spiritual enemy, Satan. And nowhere, as we read through the book of Job and any of the dialogue, is there any reference to or any idea of personal supernatural evil which the Bible so clearly sets forth elsewhere. But the reader, we know about it and see it here. Satan, this being with great power and thoroughly evil, and from the New Testament we know so much more about him. But we see that he seeks to detract from God's glory. In verses 9 through 11, he, he tells God that he believes that Job would curse him if he take away what Job has. But secondly, we see the character of God. We get a glimpse of God and His interaction with Satan behind the scenes. And it's interesting that when Satan comes and stands before God, we see that God begins the dialogue with Satan about Job. We find in verse 8, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? It wasn't the other way around. It wasn't Job bringing up Uh, it wasn't Satan bringing up Job to God. It was God saying, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Now, we see God begin the dialogue with Satan about Job, and our initial impulse might be, what is God doing? Why is He mentioning Job? Is He stupid? Is He a bumbler to do that? Well, obviously not, and I say that reverently, because we know that God would never do anything that is not perfectly good and right and wise. Rather, the absolutely good and the absolutely sovereign God is working out His sovereign purpose through the person of Job and Job's life in order to display His glory, as we will see. Someone has used a good illustration of this, and you may have heard this before, but it's like the owner of a very expensive jewelry store, who has this one especially beautiful diamond ring set in a beautiful setting in display in his jewelry case. And he walks out of the back door into the alley, and he sees the thief back there, and he says, hey, have you seen my best ring? That's kind of what the analogy is here. It's almost as if God is doing that, saying to Satan, do you see my servant Job? And if a jewelry store owner would do that, we'd think something was wrong with him. Why is he pointing that out to the thief? But this is all part of God's plan. And God knows what's going to occur. God is sovereign. And look what happens in verses 9 through 11. Satan replies, does Job fear God for nothing? And then, Satan says, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But, verse 11, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Job, Satan throws a gauntlet down before God concerning Job and says, if you strike him in this way, he will curse you. In other words, Satan is challenging God and the glory of God and Job's reverence and trust in God, and he's saying, it's only superficial because you bless him. See, what we see here behind the curtain in Job chapter 1 is that this is all about the honor of God. Now, God could have responded, I don't need to prove anything to you, Satan, and that's true. He didn't need to, or any of the other heavenly beings. But God delights to show forth His glory. It is pleasing to the Lord. It is a good thing for God to do that, and God chooses to get an open victory over Satan that in Job's heart He would display and manifest that God is of supreme worth, not Job's possessions, Not his camels, not his sheep, not even Job's family is of ultimate value to Job, but that God is of ultimate value. It's almost like a duel, isn't it? Um, In the late 1700s and early 1800s, dueling was a serious social ill in early American society. Maybe you didn't know about that, but many pastors preached sermons about the evils of dueling. I haven't preached one of those yet, so I hope none of you plan to go out and do that. But one very famous duel took place in in 1804 of Alexander Hamilton against Aaron Burr, both very famous men. Aaron Burr was Jonathan Edwards' grandson. And we look back at that day and age and people doing those things and think, why in the world do they have a duel? Why do they go out there and take paces, you know, and pull out guns and shoot at each other? It seems so senseless. But we know that it was a matter of honor. At stake was a person's honor. And if you were insulted or some way, in so, some way by someone else, If your your honor was despised in some sense, then you needed to actually carry this through to stand up and defend your honor. And that's what these two men did. And Aaron Burr died as a result of this duel, died of his wounds, and it created a national sensation of that day. It was front page news. Well, here in Job chapter 1, it's like a duel between Satan and God. Not that they are in any way equal. We know that's not the case. It's not that like evil and God are equal in strength, or Satan is equal to God in any way. Satan is a created being. God is God. He is the creator of Satan. But it was a duel in the sense that God chose to use Satan's evil intentions and his challenge about Job in this way. And the outcome of this duel, at least the first phase of it, is in the climactic conclusion of chapter 1 when Job gets up and he tears his robe in deep loss and grief. Tearing your garment was an expression of grief. And he shaves his head. Can you imagine Job shaving his head? I'm thinking, you know, he didn't have a Gillette, you know, special razor blade or uh, the Mach 3. Some of you men may use that. But he took this straight edge to his head in grief and shaved his head And then he fell to the ground in worship. And this famous declaration, if nobody knows anything about the book of Job, but they almost know this, Job saying, "'Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised.'" He worships God. And notice verse 22, "'In all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing.'" The Satan had said that Job would curse God if he took away what he had, and Job didn't do it. So, the honor of God was upheld before all the heavenly beings through his servant Job and his response. He worshiped God. The superior worth of God was revealed. The glory of God was revealed. And so, we have this glimpse into the existence of Satan a glimpse at the sovereignty of God. But the other thing we see here in Job chapter 1 is Job's suffering, his great loss. And his suffering is going to get much worse. In chapter 2, we know it's going to to affect his health. And as the book unfolds and we hear allusions in the dialogue to what's happening in Job's life, he loses his reputation, he loses his his esteem in the society. He loses his friends. He just loses everything. But here we see the initial tragedies unfold and messenger after messenger. It's almost like a play that's written this way that one messenger doesn't even get off stage left, then on from stage right, another messenger comes with news of woe. Four different messengers coming and concluding with this climax of his children being killed in this terrible windstorm of some kind, and the house collapsing on them, and all of them dying. Here is Job, the one who had been the greatest of all the men in the East in terms of his wealth and reputation and stature, his wisdom, the one who had gone to great extremes to pray for his children and make sacrifices for them. You can't help but think that part of that is so that, so that They would not be judged in any way by God, which seems to take place here. And he loses them all. Job's worst nightmare takes place. And so, I don't want us to lightly skip over the depths of Job's loss here, his suffering. Even in the brief references to it here, I want us to walk around it a bit and just think about it. There's this scene from the beginning of the movie saving Private Ryan. And that's not an easy movie to see. I took my teenage son to it years ago when it first came out and saw it with him because I thought it's good for him to see a little bit about what World War II is like, what his grandfather went through in this war. And it was a very realistic movie. So I I can't say if any children are hearing this, don't necessarily think that it's time for you to see this because it's a very violent film. But there's a part in the beginning that there's the scene in the can't. Kansas cornfields and wheat fields of this farmhouse, and this farm wife is there, and it's a beautiful day, and this black car drives down the long lane to her house, and this military chaplain gets out. And you see her kind of viewing this from behind the kitchen screen door, and the chaplain walks up the steps, and you see her just, I think she just kind of collapses in anticipation of what this news is turns out that three of her four sons have been killed in the war. And, of course, the movie is about saving son number four, the last one left, saving Private Ryan and this uh, squad's attempt to bring him back unharmed. I'm not going to tell you how it turns out, but the thing that struck me about that is, as I viewed that, you know, you just, when you see… The grief about to hit, you just almost collapse as well because it's just palpable, that sense of loss of a mother and getting that horrible news. Well, Job's loss was very great, but amazingly, his initial response, even in the depth of his grief, is to worship the Lord. Now, that's the overview, and I want us to highlight then, as we think about this, three truths about God and Satan that we gain from our text, and then make three applications to our lives. What are the three truths that I want us to see? The first is this, Satan's aim is to destroy our delight in God. Satan's aim is to take away our joy in God, God, because really the heart of true worship is delighting in God. And so, Satan wants to do whatever he can in our lives to take away that joy in God. And he has many weapons in his arsenal to get us to do that. Satan uses both pleasure and pain. Both approaches are ones that he can use. And apparently, pleasure or abundance didn't work in Job's case. Satan had given him, or God had given him much And Satan saw that that didn't make him curse God or forget God, so Satan wanted to try the other approach, pain. But we see that that didn't work as well. And those two extreme approaches are also what Satan tries to do in our lives. He tries to tempt us in the area of pleasure and in abundance, and we have a lot of that in America these days, with the idea that God is superfluous, that we don't need God anymore. And so, when life is going well and everything is, 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 is well in our lives, it's so easy for us to begin to forget God, and not, not call upon Him, not trust in Him, not have that same kind of urgency that we do when we're in trouble and we need God's help. And on the other hand, there's the temptation that comes in deep pain or loss, the temptation to think that God doesn't care, or that God is hostile in some way, or that He's powerless to help us, or maybe even wrestling with the doubt that whether there is a true God or not. You see, that's the way Satan wants to work in our life. John Piper puts it this way. He says, preaching on this text, he says, Satan is after your delight in God. He will put anything else in the place of God. Think about that. Satan is after your delight in God, and he'd be happy to put anything else in God's place, either extreme, pleasure, pain, or anything in between. Satan just doesn't want God's people to find joy in God himself. And so, we need to ask ourselves, what treasure is it or what hardship is it this week that might rob us of our joy in God? They might be things that are very good. I know that I look forward to my day off. Patty laughs at me because I have this whole list of things that I love doing. I'm looking forward to mowing the lawn. I've got a riding lawnmower, so you know that's fun. And I want to do this and that. And I was coming over here and say, "Oh boy, look! I'm going to mow the lawn tomorrow. I hope it's a nice day like this." You know, those might be okay things, but if I love them more than I delight in God, it's not worshiping God. Satan and somehow wins then. God wants our joy. Not that we can't, can't take joy in those lesser things, but what is it that tends to rise in our hearts and lives, whether it's in the area of suffering, whether it's in the area of the joys of this life, that we substitute for God because Satan is after our worship, our delight in God. The second truth we see here is that God aims To reveal his glory in his people's hearts. God aims to reveal his glory, his worth in his people's hearts and in their lives. The great aim of creation and redemption is the glory of God. Jonathan Edwards wrote a whole treatise on that, a whole book on the end for which God created the world. And that end is the glory of God. And the mirror of the glory of God is His people's delight in God. It's like a reflection of the glory of God. God's glory is revealed with or without us, but God intends to glorify Himself by reflecting His glory through us as we delight in Him, as we live for Him, as we trust in Him, as we obey Him. It's like it mirrors back the glory of God. And here we have the privilege in the book of Job in pulling back the curtain in Job's life, and we see the heart of the issue that's at stake here. It's like the heart of the duel. It's the honor of God that's at stake. Will Job curse God, or will Job trust God? Will he reverence God? Will he worship God? And the same holds true... For you and for me. God's aim is to reveal His supreme worth in us. Romans 11 says, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Him be the glory forever and ever. Paul summarizes that doxology of the glory of God when he's talking about God's working in the Jews and in history. And you and I look at history, and we don't see history from God's point of view. History is so incredibly complex. The thing that amazes me, the more of history I know, the more I realize I don't know. Because every historical event that I learned in high school or whatever, if you read a whole book about it, you see that it's so much more complex in all its outworkings, all the characters, all the historical circumstances involved. And yet, in this deeply mysterious way, God is using all of history for His own glory. And we know that the presidential elections of 2008, whatever the result is, and we already, and if you live through this, you have a sense of how complex it is. There's a different news story every day, you could read them all. Well, God's going to over, uh, sovereignly oversee all of that for His glory. But that's true for each of our lives as well. God intends, He aims to reveal His glory in your life and in mine. And that should be our aim as well, the goal of the glory of God. But that the, the third truth that we see in this text is that God is absolutely sovereign over Satan and over all things. And we see here that God grants to Satan limited power to cause pain. Notice in chapter 1, verse 12, Then the Lord said to Satan, Very well, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. So, Satan knows just how far he can go. It's not in any sense as if Satan is equal to God. Satan has to ask permission from God, and God sets the bounds. And then chapter 2, verse 6, the same thing. Uh, The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Again, God sets the bounds. Satan can do nothing apart from God's permission. It's as if Satan is like on a a lion on a leash. You know, you walk by houses these days, and we sometimes go for walks, and we're not sure whether a dog is behind an invisible fence. And there's this one golden retriever that we know is behind an invisible fence down the street from us. But we walk by, and he comes out with the fiercest growl, comes staring out at you at the street but I know there's an invisible fence. It's like there's a force field around this dog. He comes running out and stops flat, you know, right before he gets to the street. Now, we're not even scared anymore, but if, if I didn't know that, I was walking down there, I'd be worried. Well, that's an illustration of Satan, if you would. He's on God's leash. He's behind the invisible fence of where God has bounded him in each of our lives. And God just reins him in as he wants to or gives him slack as he wants to to fulfill the sovereign purposes of God. And that's what we see behind this glimpse of the curtain in Job's life. God is not up there wringing his hands, wondering how he's going to control Satan. No. And Satan's work, even we find here, is ultimately God's work. Isn't that an ironic thing? God hands over Job to Satan. But then when Satan uses that power in Job's life, what does Job say? Verse 21, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The same happens in chapter 2. Job basically is saying, God did this. In other words, the root of Job's piety reaches back behind Satan to a sovereign God and says, God reigns. Now, I heard a sermon once in 1975 that the pastor said that Job was wrong in saying that. Job was actually mistaken. And Job was wrong, and Satan really was in control here, and it's because Job didn't have enough faith. And he went on about that. But actually, the Bible is very clear that Job did not sin in what he said here. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. In verse chapter 2, verse 10, in all this, at the very end, Job did not sin in what he said. So, we know that Scripture upholds what Job said about God. And so, God is absolutely sovereign, and what a comforting truth that is. And so we want to make three applications from what we learn here. The first is this. In the face of great loss, seek to worship God, even in deep grief. I don't think that I've suffered anything anywhere close to the suffering that many people suffer in this life, and certainly not what Job experienced here. We've had members of our church lose a child. But can you imagine losing 10, all 10 of your children at once? It's beyond my knowledge of what that would be like. But what I'm calling you to here is not to downplay grief, but even in grief, however severe your grief might be in life at various times, to mingle into your grief true worship of God. I've seen this many times in funerals and memorial services here in our church where people who are grieving deeply have this joy in the Lord and worship Him. But there may be that the times that there is very little joy at all involved with this, that it's just a, a response of reverence to God, of trust in Him, even in the depths of sorrow. I like the way Mike Mason, who wrote the book, The Gospel According to Job, put it when he talked about Job's experience here in Job 1. He says, before we consider the actual words of Job's worship, we need to pause and take careful note of the attitude of heart in which they were offered. And so he says, what was Job's attitude of heart here? Was Job in the midst of his grief and turmoil somehow at peace? Was he, thrilled, was he filled with a strange spiritual joy? No, not at all. He was as broken and cast down as a man can be. And then he goes on to say, can true worship really transpire when the heart is broken and the mind shocked and dulled with horror? Is there any place in worship for bitter teal tears and wailing? Or can groaning be a part of, of worship too? And then he says, think of Mary at the foot of the cross, Was it a sweet and mystical experience for her to stand there and watch her son die? No doubt years later, looking back on that day, she had more tender feelings. But at the time, surely it was hellish. And so it will be for us whenever we make direct contact in our daily lives with the central object of mystery in Christian worship, the cross. It is marvelous to meditate on the cross and to be flooded with peace and joy, but that is the Holy Spirit showing us the effects of the cross. It is not the cross itself, but more wonderful still because more worshipful is the moment when the rough wood touches our flesh and the nail bites. Mason's talking about this experience. What was it like for Job talks about Mary at Jesus death. What was it like for Mary seeing her son die? And he's saying, don't think that there was necessarily this sweet peace or joy. I'm not saying that there aren't times when there is joy even in the midst of loss, but it might not be that way. But still, we can worship. Mason concludes this part by saying, real worship has less to do with offering sacrifices than with being a sacrifice ourselves. And he quotes Romans 12, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, for this is your spiritual worship. And that may be what it's like when deep grief comes. The real question is, we have to ask ourselves, in my own set of circumstances right now, Am I giving glory and thanks to God from my heart? And one of the reasons I think that Job was able to worship is because apparently it was a long-standing practice in his life to worship God. And so it was almost an instinctual response. It had been cultivated as a habit of worship that had been cultivated a long time in Job's life. And so, there are lots of small trials that we go through or small temptations to pleasure in this life that we need to focus on continuing to give ourselves to God as a spiritual worship to God and cultivate that. The second application I have for you is this. In the face of great loss, seek to find comfort in the absolute sovereignty of God and the unfailing love of God. One of the great problems that Job has later on in the book is the theology of suffering which he had was really incomplete. He didn't have the knowledge that New Testament saints had. He, he didn't even have a lot of what Old Testament saints had as progressive revelation took place. Rem- Remember, he was living around Abraham's time, maybe even before Abraham. And so, Job and his friends simply had this theology that uh, if you were righteous and if you feared God and loved God, then God would bless you. So, if you suffered greatly, then obviously you had done something wrong. Now, Job knew that that wasn't true for himself, so he struggled with that throughout the book. But his friends, they all knew Job was hiding some great sin, which wasn't true. He didn't have a robust New Testament theology of suffering, but we have that. Now that Jesus has come and lived and died, we know that in the cross, the the purposes of the absolute sovereignty of God met with the great unfailing love of God, so God's holiness was satisfied, and yet His love was demonstrated in the cross. And so, in great loss, you and I can find comfort because we have such a God. It's the same God that Job knew. We just know so much more than Job did. And Romans chapter 8 makes this very clear. Romans 8 of verse 18, Paul says, "...I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will, will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed." For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. That's God. He's the one who subjected the creation to the curse in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And so, even we, Paul goes on to say that even we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons taking comfort in the God who is in control of all the circumstances of our lives and the God who loves us with an unfailing love. I tried to think about what would be some other illustrations of deep loss. And one of the ones that came to my mind was what Jeremiah experienced is, the the weeping prophet. And you think about living in the time of a nation being utterly destroyed. You think, look at what Jeremiah lived through. The enemy came in and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed temple, destroyed the city walls, carried the nation captivity into ba- Babylon. Imagine what that would have been like for Jeremiah to go through, a man who loved and feared the Lord. Imagine Lancaster just being laid waste, the whole United States maybe laid waste, and how deeply grievous that would be. And Jeremiah experienced that, and his writings are full of the grief that come with that. But just let me just read a part, of you, a part of Lamentations 3 to get a sense of this, to get a sense of, listen to Jeremiah, finding comfort in the unfailing love of God in the midst of loss. Lamentations 3, starting with verse 13, He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiv- qu- quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my, pe- my pe- people, They mock me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs and sated me with gall. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, My splendor is gone, and all that I had hoped from the Lord. What a statement of loss! I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I, I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. And now hear the turn. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore have I hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Brings back to our mind the, the theme of the psalm. Great is thy faithfulness, isn't it? But Jeremiah is able in that loss to take comfort in the, in the sovereign, unfailing love of his God. And we can go there as well. I don't know what kind of grief you may be going through. Maybe none right now. But when you do go through it, and even now, make sure you are taking comfort in the love of God, in the sovereignty of God. And that brings me to my third application to us. In preparation for great loss, cultivate a right response today. In preparation, maybe there isn't great grief and loss in your life, but in preparation for the times that may come, cultivate a right response today to both joys and sorrows in this life. today begin preparing for tomorrow. How do you do that? Well, let's start with the joys. When you look out and enjoy a day like this and maybe go for a walk or step out into your backyard or just breathe in the spring air, James says, let him who is happy, let him sing psalms of praise. I hope that you connect the good things that you're experiencing in life to the goodness of God and let that connection rise up in praise to God. In other words, don't just experience good things and not have a Godward orientation when they happen. Let them be a springboard to worship God. And then the other side of the coin is when the sorrows come, let them be a springboard as well to trust in the unfailing love of God. Maybe right now all that you have are the small kind of Pesty sorrows of life that don't really aren't really big. They wouldn't make a news story. They, you wouldn't even give a testimony about them at Thanksgiving Eve at our church because they're not that big. Everybody goes through them. Maybe just small things. Are those a springboard in your life to call upon the Lord, to trust in Him, to go deeper with God, to seek Him in His Word, to seek to be obeying Him in what He's called you to do for His glory now? And living a life that pleases him more and more. Going to him with your sin and confessing it to him and searching your heart and saying, Lord, you've brought this sorrow into my life. Maybe it's only a small one, but let it be a a means of wrestling with the remaining sin in my heart and trusting in you and going to the cross with my life. You see, in preparation for the, the storms that may come in this life, and if the Lord doesn't return, we'll all face death. Maybe it will come suddenly to us. Maybe we'll have time to prepare. We don't know. Cultivate a right response now. One of the great missionaries that I respect so much is Amy Carmichael, a missionary from Ireland who spent 50 years in India, two years in Japan before she went there, and uh, spent her life rescuing especially young girls from unspeakable evils of that society and telling them about the Lord, giving them help in many ways, and just being greatly used by God. But she spent 50 years over there, but the last 25 years of her life were spent as an invalid due to an accident that she had. And really spending that time, those years, in a room for the most part, writing, seeking God, praying, deep suffering and loss in her life. But out of that brokenness, and one of her books is... uh, a rose from a briar. In other words, out of the thorny briar comes a rose. And her theme of, in a sense, being used by God to be a rose in others' lives through the suffering that He gives you. God used those 25 years of hardship, though, to bring great blessing to many others. And I conclude with one of the poems that she wrote. And just think about about this heart of seeking contentment in God, no matter what might come. Thou hast not that, my child, but thou hast me. And am not I alone enough for thee? I know it all. Know how thy heart was set upon this joy which is not given yet. And well I know how though the wistful days thou walkest all the dear familiar ways as unregarded as a breath of air, but there in love and longing, always there. I know it all, but from thy briar shall blow a rose for others if it were not so. I would have told thee, come then, say to me, my Lord, my love, I am content with thee. It's a matter of our worship. That's what God wants. Let's pray. Father. Father we do ask that you would teach us from Job, teach us from Jeremiah, teach us from Amy Carmichael, teach us from one another as we see and encourage one another by the faith that you've given us to be content with you and you're working in our lives. Take us this week, Lord. Take us and help us to find consolation and comfort from you in grief and help us to lay our lives on the altar of the cross, the small cross that you give each one of us as we trust in the great cross of Jesus Christ and his life for us. May we do it in the power that you give us, and may you receive the glory through Jesus our Lord.